0: You're listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. And here in the studio with me today, I have a friend of mine, Miss Liz Williams from the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. She's also an author and is doing all kinds of great stuff in the food community here and all about the country as well.
1: So I'm really happy to be here.
0: I'm so glad you're here. And so, Liz, I, you know, I kind of want to get started because I, I feel like there's so much for us to talk about, and uh, before you got here, or right when you got here, we started talking about how there's not enough time in the day for all the things, and I can totally talk food so fab and food books probably for the next six hours, but <laughs> we don't have six hours, so I kind of want to start with why don't you tell us a little bit about the Southern Food and Beverage Museum and what that's all about.
1: So the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is a regional museum here in New Orleans that opened originally in 2008 in the Riverwalk. We tell the story of the food of the South, how it developed, its history, where it's going, what's going on now. And um, in 2014, we moved to our current home, which is a building that we own, Uh, which doubled our size and really allowed us to expand greatly. And it it was the old Dryads Market. And we have divided the museum into market stalls. And each state in the South is a market stall and tells the story of that state.
0: Well, I I remember the old museum. Mm -hmm. And uh, when y'all first opened, uh, I want to say y'all had an intern or someone from a Local university. And after I wrote my cookbook, they called because you had a Katrina table. Mm -hmm. And they said, Hey, Amy, can we have some of your broken china and crystal for the (laughs) Katrina table? And I said, Sure, but I'm still eating off of it. But (laughs) it had chips in it and everything. And I remember bringing it over there. And that was my first introduction to your space. And then I, um, you know, I kind of saw it evolve. And Got so excited whenever all of a sudden you went from this, you know, kind of like hidden in the corner of the Riverwalk space to gorgeous, massive with a restaurant, a kitchen, and all kinds of stuff. It was what was it like for it to go from 2008 to 2014 and get that big? That you know, I say that fast, but some people may say that's not that fast, but. That's pretty assertive growth.
1: Yeah, I, I mean, I, I think it was that fast. Um, certainly, when we started, no one knew what a food museum was. And people would say, oh, do you have statues of asparagus or, <laughs> you know, pictures of cauliflower? What is a food museum? And so we had that learning curve that we had to bring people up with us um, to learn what we were. And then as people came to the museum more and more people would say, oh, I have this thing, or I have that thing. Would you like it? Because I don't really use it, or but I don't want to throw it away because I think it's too important. And then people began to realize how what we were doing had a real importance. Um So often, if you go to natural history museums, the whole thing is all about the search for food. And you'd find... That's a good point. You find... um little bone fish hooks and different kinds of vessels to hold liquids and um, uh, points like arrow points and all these things that are really all about food. And then once there was um, agriculture and writing, all of a sudden now everything changes and museums and anthropologists and all those people are more interested in government and religion and art and all these kind of social things that are inventions as opposed to the search for food, which is a very animal aspect.
0: And all those things are discussed over food, right? That's right. <laughs> they really
1: are. So food is still the key. But you would think people had stopped eating because all of a sudden there's not really coverage of food. And if you do see a beautiful, um picture that's beautiful, silver and chased, and all that sort of thing. It's only the thing that is aesthetically pleasing the artisan that's concept. right that is kept. So then, the everyday wooden plate or very cheap kind of um, ceramic that might have been used, or a tin plate that might have been used by the everyday people, we don't have those. And so I said, we need to start collecting the trash, so to speak, so that we can document this for the future. And that's what people started to understand. So it's been exciting. And we even started to get letters and emails from people outside of the South who said, what about us?
0: So, I mean, I guess, you know, when you go to tackle it and you think about, you know, Southern food's pretty broad, Mm -hmm. you know, and we, we tend to think very much in our own little environment. So, you know, I start thinking New Orleans food, then I kind of go South Louisiana food. But, you know, as someone who loves food and loves to watch how recipes develop and how things happen as you just move up the Mississippi Delta, it, you start to realize that Southern food, you know, where do you cut the line and where, how do you determine? you know, what is Southern food and at what point do we start looking beyond that?
1: Well, for the Southern Food and Beverage Museum, which is a regional museum, we define Southern food as anything you eat in the South. So that means it can be Korean food or it can be the food of um, Syrian immigrants or whatever because it is going to influence the way we eat in the South, and every group of immigrants, every people has done that. So, starting with the, you know, the Native Americans, the food has changed over the years. So then, that's made us create our own National Food and Beverage Museum. Actually, it's the National Food and Beverage Foundation, and um, that has made us understand that we are going to, <coughs> excuse me, be opening regional museums around the country. We've created this library. We have the National Culinary Heritage Register, which is a register of places 50 years old or older that have contributed to the food and drink of America. So we've truly gone beyond the South, but every regional museum will be interested in its region.
0: I can only imagine what it's like, how much stuff... You have. I mean, I look in my house and I have stuff that I go, I really love this. I never get to use it, but I I just can't let this platter go, Mm -hmm. you know. Or Mm -hmm. I have a cast iron pot that I don't use as much as I should because I don't like to have to clean and season it. But it was my stepdad's great uncle's. And so I'm not going to get rid of it. And so I know how much junk, trash, cool stuff I have just sitting in my shed, I can only imagine some of the cool treasures that just show up on your doorstep.
1: Oh, it's it's unbelievable. People are incredibly generous, and they have the most wild assortment of things.
0: <laughs> well, what are some of the crazy things? Anything that you got that you even had to Google or try and figure out what it was? or?
1: Well, we have gotten a lot of gadgets that we've had to identify. I mean, even weird little things like there was a time when you could get a peanut butter um, mixer so that it's this wire that fits on top of a jar of peanut butter. and To get the oil and, and, back in. And, and, and before things were made like Jiffy or whatever, you know, it would separate. And so you could squish it together again in your jar and... It comes to you it looks like this, this wire weird thing you know so we had to google that one for <laughs> sure uh, but then we've gotten other things like the Bruning Bar um, so you spectacular. know spectacular it's just unbelievable the generosity that that people have exhibited toward the museum and of course we put the bar back together and restored it and now it's in use again And so it's just, you know, it's exciting.
0: Well, I know your volunteers are important, too. And uh, every time I go over there, I see a a nice little handful of interns. And every single time I walk in that building, I see Chef Nanu working (laughs) on something. And I just, I giggle every time. And I go, don't they ever let you rest? And last time I was there, he had this... Big table, and he was, you know, cleaning it up, and it looked like he was building things. And I, yeah, you know, I think it's, it's, um, I guess, wonderful that it's not just little bitty gadgets; it's whole giant pieces of furniture, and. Parts of buildings
1: and things like (laughs) that showing up on your front porch. (laughs) Well, you know, we have that wonderful oyster truck from Messina and Messina, which is a 1930 Mack truck. Um, uh, Aaron Franklin in Austin, Texas, sent us his very first smoker that we now use in the yard. And so... There are just many, many things that people have so generously given to us.
0: Well, what's the next phase? What's the next step? what are what are y'all gonna be rolling out? any um, new exhibits or any new buildouts
1: or well at the at the museum, at sofab, we are soon to uh, begin work on the Gumbo garden, which is our outdoor cooking space and um, like that name. Yeah. In the next few weeks, there's going to be a lot of um, activity out there and there'll be a pig pit. There'll be a big um, outdoor oven for pizza and other kinds of roasting. We're going to have grills and there'll be a covered area. Where I just want to come can... play. <laughs> oh yeah. It's going to be just wonderful. And then we have these, these already um, in the works, programs of things like how to break down a deer and how to do all these things that you really are only going to do outside.
0: I love that because, you know, you think about that. Uh, there are so many things that living in the city, we don't always get exposed to. But mm-hmm. I mean, I, I look at my husband got a phone call the other day from somebody who said, do you want to go duck hunting? My husband's more the lover of ducks than the hunter of uh-huh. ducks. Uh-huh. But even if he went out there, he probably wouldn't know what to do after he got the duck. Right. So, <laughs> so I think that's great that it's it, you know exposing people to things that they may not always get an opportunity to touch and do and watch and.
1: That's that's right, and we're gonna give. We had a, a clinic already about how to fry a turkey in a safe manner and all of Brilliant. that. Brilliant! So, yeah. <laughs> and
0: you you took your phone off the hook so they didn't call you on Thanksgiving That's Day. Right. For you said, call the Butterball Hotline. That's
1: right.
0: <laughs> well, um, I know you have some events coming up in February mm-hmm. and lots of things happening. So, what's going on with that?
1: Well, so in February, uh, actually on February 6th, we have Jeremiah Tower. He's going to be appearing at SoFab, but there's a a documentary that's been produced by Anthony Bourdain for CNN called The Last Magnificent and it's going to go into the theaters in March and then later be on CNN, but you can preview it at the uh, New Orleans Jazz Market, which is across Across the the street from SoFab. So we're going to have the the preview, we've got it all cleared with CNN and everything to have this preview. And Jeremiah Tower is going to be there to answer questions afterward. John Bash is our MC, and he's hosting the evening. And uh, then uh, we'll go to SoFab for a meet and greet with uh, Jeremiah Tower, and we'll have some of his books for sale and everything. But the thing that's so much fun about it is that we have priced it so that people in the food industry. So if you're um, a waiter or you are um, a cook or you're part of a bartending staff or whatever, you can go. So this is not a big fundraiser at $125 a pop or anything like that. If you're a SoFab member, it's only $20 if you buy in advance and $25 if you're not a member, and then it's $30 at the the door.
0: And, you know, that sounds like a really fun way to spend an evening especially if you are into food and I know so many of us who work in the food industry sometimes we get home and we're like oh we you know we're not going out for a fancy meal but I do feel that we're lifelong learners Mm -hmm. and we want to know more whether it's about the cuisine that we do or what is influencing other people out there and it sounds like you know having somebody like Jeremiah Tower and you know, his California cuisine and, you know, all the things that, you know, he has brought to the food community is a great resource for
1: just ideas. Well, and just the Chez Panisse part of the story, the um, the fact that he basically invented the modern restaurant in stars. And so many people actually don't know who he is because... This was before everybody was on television. Before
0: the the celebrity chef. That's he right. He was a celebrity
1: before celebrity chef was that's, cool. <laughs> that's exactly right. And so um, I think this is an opportunity to see him, to meet him, and hear what he has to say.
0: Well, I'm definitely putting that one on my calendar. Wonderful. And, um, I encourage everyone else to. And I think $25 is a, a small price to pay for an evening of entertainment as well. And, you know, we spent so much time talking about all the things happening at SoFab. And, you know, like I said, I could talk it for hours. I love getting a chance to go in there and talk to Holly and Jill and see what is happening. But you have a life outside of SoFab. That's and I don't right. know how you do it, honey. <laughs> um, you know, I, I sit there and I go, uh, somehow there there are these people in New Orleans that have their hands in all kinds of pots all over the place and we still manage to juggle it and balance it and you know you have everything going on with with sofab but you also ha- are a writer
1: right so some of that writing is a way to channel all the research and everything that gets done for the exhibits so my first book lift your i uh, know my first book was new orleans a food biography that book I wrote because I was trying to figure out, as we were putting together the exhibit about New Orleans, why we have a cuisine in New Orleans. And, you know, if you look at cookbooks, all it ever tells you is all these ethnic groups came together and sort of magically became a magically. cuisine. Yes, we threw them in exactly. the gumbo pot, and it all came it together. It all came together, exactly. And so I thought, well, okay, there are lots of ethnic groups in New York and lots of ethnic groups in other parts of the country... And even in the South, there are the same ethnic groups that were in New Orleans. And they maybe didn't develop a cuisine. They may have developed a dish here or there, yeah. but not a true cuisine. And we developed a true cuisine. If you look at Sidney Mintz and what he considers a cuisine, it's a, a, play, it's a kind of eating where everyone eats the same thing. Everyone recognizes it. They know it's their food. It's part of their identity, and it is their food. It is their food, and we definitely—I mean—that that definition could have been written for us. And um, so, I really set out to find out why that was, and I, I won't ruin it because <laughs> they, everyone needs to read the book. But
0: you know, I—I I think that it's a great point to think that you know. There is like if I go to New York City I, and I look at the neighborhoods and I look at the cuisine, the queen, cuisine is kind of separated by neighborhood. Mm-hmm. And a few years ago, I took Chef Tess, and she and I went up there because we wanted to eat West African cuisine, mm-hmm. but we wanted to to eat it, I guess, not mixed in with mm-hmm. all the other things That's that right. we have here, and so. Our, our answer was, let's go to New York City, let's go to a West African neighborhood, and let's eat in the restaurants there. And I think it's, it's interesting to see how in some cities, it's, it's divided by neighborhood, it's divided by area. But in New Orleans, I, I mean, I, re- I really feel like people were passing things over the fence and going,
1: hey, here, try this. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all going back and forth. Oh, it's true. We Creolize everything. So if you come here and we like your food, we're going to make it ours. We just do.
0: And that's what I tell people. I'm like, oh, if you bring that over to my house, I'm going to steal it.
1: (laughs) Because, you know,
0: I just have to change one thing and it's my recipe. That's right. Or if I give you my recipe, once I give it to you, it's your recipe. (laughs) And, And that's kind of seems to be a little bit about, you know, how we are and part of our DNA is is adapting and falling in love with other people's flavors. Right. And then kind of somehow integrating them into what is our everyday life. Right, right. Well, are there any cuisines that, you know, when we look at New Orleans and we look at Southern cuisine, are there any things that maybe we're, we're overlooking and we're not realizing is truly impacting, you know, what we're eating every day? Like any groups or cultures?
1: Well, I I believe that we forget when we talk about Creole cuisine, about sort of getting into the 20th century, um, because that's when it changed again, really. And so I think that all the Sicilians who came at the end of the 19th century and the beginning of the 20th century have really changed our food Snowballs, uh, red gravy, using breadcrumbs as stuffing instead of rice, all of those things that, that, like just stuff artichokes and vegetables and whatever, all of those things are things that absolutely um, came with the Sicilians. And we don't even have an awareness of it. It's become so much more. We just think that's what it is. That's what it is, exactly. And even the use of canned tomatoes was something that the Sicilians brought with them because we used to only use fresh tomatoes before.
0: And I think, half, I think a lot of people don't even realize how many tomato canning factories were at one time in New Orleans.
1: And pasta factories that they called macaroni factories. Yes. And Progresso Foods started in New Orleans. And so now, you know, it's a national brand, but it started here. There's just so much.
0: I feel like, um, you know, right after Katrina, I would see, like, the influx of people coming in to help rebuild and our construction workers, and I I would say, what's a pupusa? And (laughs) and now, you know, we're 10 years out, and I'm going, everybody in the next 10 years is going to have a pupusa on their Sunday dinner table when all is said and done because
1: we've started to take in... Another flavor. That's right. And look at the Vietnamese food. I mean, that was in the, the late seventies, um, and so that's been around long enough that it's really, really started to um, impact our food. And of course, everybody knows what a banh mi is, even if they think of it as a as a Vietnamese po' boy. And um, the the bakeries have in, uh, influenced us, and really almost been a throwback to another time in terms of the traditions of the bakeries. Oh, it just, it it really, really makes a difference. And look at Mofo. I mean, that place wouldn't exist without the Vietnamese influence.
0: Well, it sounds to me like there there's a Creole Italian
1: book to be That's written right. and maybe even a Vietnamese uh, Creole right. book to be written. Well, So I'm working on the Creole Italian book now. I'm half Sicilian. So part of it is a little bit memoir. It's a little bit discussion of um immigration and assimilation, as well as how the food of New Orleans has changed?
0: I have no Sicilian in me, but I want to adopt a Nona (laughs) because (laughs) my favorite thing, and I say this all the time so my listeners know, I am a red gravy girl. Uh I can live on bread and And red red gravy, gravy, and I would be happy. And I kind of like the sweeter red gravy. What about you?
1: Well, my grandmother used to use great carrots into her ah. into her tomato sauce. She didn't make red gravy in the sense of having a roux in it or anything in that sort of creolized way. She still made her traditional sauce. Sauce. Yes. But she never put sugar in it. She always put grated carrots, and if you wanted it sweeter, you just put more carrots. All right. And that gives it flavor and not just sweetness because the sweetness from the sugar it's all you get is sweet
0: and it can be a little overpowering Mm -hmm. uh Mm -hmm. my my dad used to make a sauce pecan Uh and um i somewhere in me is the love of red gravy because i would always tell him okay it needs a little more tomato and let's sweeten it up and so when he wasn't looking i'd as a little kid, I'd grab like a little cane syrup and, Uh you know, pour uh it in. But, uh you know, a little bit can go a long way. So I think the carrots are a a great idea. (laughs) Well, I know you have a, we only have a little bit more time. Time flies when you're having fun. But you do have another book that is currently out there where people can get it. And that is, that
1: one is called Lift Your Spirits. And actually, I wrote that after I wrote New Orleans, A Food Biography, because I had all this material that I had researched, and my editors kept saying, no, nope, it's too much, that needs to be in, in another book. And so that's kind of what uh, what brought me to this one. And I wrote it with Chris McMillan, the well-known bartender in town, Absolutely. because we wanted to have some really good recipes in there for, for great cocktails.
0: And I like that they're... Or classics in there, you know. My mm-hmm. favorite. I love a sidecar. Right, me too. I, I, and I feel like I was watching the Barefoot Contessa one day, many, many years ago, and she said, "Let me introduce you to a, an old nostalgic drink." And I remember going, "Hmm, I wish I had known about that sooner." You know, <laughs> I, I, I would I'd say, you know, it, it was, it was. A flavor that I was like, hey, I like a good sidecar.
1: Well, and it's one of those early cocktails that was made with brandy, yes. which we always forget that that's a spirit, and we can make cocktails with brandy. And, uh, and of course, it was sort of invented here in New Orleans because the Crusta, which was invented by um, Mr. Santini, um, was the first cocktail that had lemon peel in it and he also crusted the top of the glass with sugar and Ted Hay says the next step was the sidecar.
0: All right. Well, I learned something today. <laughs> well, I can't wait to read the book. Um if you'll just tell our listeners out there the names of your three books and where they can maybe get them.
1: Well, so the the two books that they can get right now are um, Lift Your Spirits. You can buy that at the museum as well as on Amazon and all those other places. So uh, the other one, New Orleans A Food Biography, also in both places. They're both Kindle. Uh, you can get a Kindle version and all of that sort of thing. But definitely if you're in New Orleans come and pick them up at the museum, and I'm happy to autograph them.
0: And then the other one, we'll know about it. We'll get you back on the show when it's done. That's right, when it's
1: done, exactly.
0: (laughs) Well, and if you'll tell everybody where the Southern Food and Beverage Museum is.
1: So the Southern Food and Beverages Museum is at 1504 O.C. Haley Boulevard in New Orleans. It's open every day but Tuesday from uh, 11 to 5.30 and people can find out all about our events and sign up for our newsletter by going to southernfood.org.
0: I love it. I'm so glad you came in today. Um, February 6th, everybody needs to get over there and uh, attend the Jeremiah Tower event. It's only 25 bucks if you're not a member. But go ahead and get a membership so you can get a discount for everything else that happens this year.
1: That's right. And all of that's available online so you can get it all done before you get there.
0: Well, great. Well, y'all, you've been listening to WRBH Radio 88.3 FM. This is your host of New Orleans by Mouth, Chef Amy Sins. And very big thank you and hugs to Miss Liz Williams from the Southern Food and Beverage Museum. And thank you all for listening. Until next time, ciao.